Chapter Thirteen, Part One of South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gazina. South, the story of Shackleton's last expedition, nineteen fourteen to nineteen seventeen, by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Chapter Thirteen. Part one. THE ROSS SEA PARTY I now turn to the fortunes and misfortunes of the Ross Sea Party and the Aurora. In spite of extraordinary difficulties occasioned by the breaking out of the Aurora from her winter quarters before sufficient stores and equipment had been landed, Captain Aeneas Mackintosh and the party under his command achieved the object of this side of the expedition for the depot that was the main object of the expedition was laid in the spot that I had indicated, and if the transcontinental party had been fortunate enough to have crossed, they would have found the assistance, in the shape of stores, that would have been vital to the success of their undertaking. Owing to the dearth of stores, clothing, and sledging equipment, the depot party was forced to travel more slowly and with greater difficulty than would have otherwise been the case. The result was that in making this journey the greatest qualities of endurance, self-sacrifice and patience were called for, and the call was not in vain, as you reading the following pages will realise. It is more than regrettable that after having gone through those many months of hardship and toil, Mackintosh and Hayward should have been lost. Spencer Smith, during those long days, dragged by his comrades on the sledge, suffering but never complaining, became an example to all men. Mackintosh and Hayward owed their lives on that journey to the unremitting care and strenuous endeavours of Joyce, Wilde and Richards, who, also scurvy-stricken but fitter than their comrades, dragged them through the deep snow and blizzards on the sledges. I think that no more remarkable story of human endeavour has been revealed than the tale of that long march which I have collated from various diaries. Unfortunately, the diary of the leader of this side of the expedition was lost with him. The outstanding feature of the Ross Sea side was the journey made by these six men. The earlier journeys for the first year did not produce any signs of the qualities of leadership amongst the others. Mackintosh was fortunate for the long journey in that he had these three men with him, Ernest Wilde, Richards, and Joyce. Before proceeding with the adventures of this party, I want to make clear in these pages how much I appreciate the assistance I received both in Australia and New Zealand, especially in the latter dominion. And amongst the many friends there, it is not invidious on my part to lay special stress on the name of Leonard Tripp, who has been my mentor, counsellor and friend for many years, and who, when the expedition was in precarious and difficult circumstances, devoted his energy, thought, and gave his whole time and advice to the best interests of our cause. I also must thank Edward Saunders, who for the second time has greatly helped me in preparing an expedition record for publication. To the Dominion Government I tender my warmest thanks, to the people of New Zealand, and especially to those many friends 
too numerous to mention here, who helped us when our fortunes were at a low ebb, I wish to say that their kindness is an evergreen memory to me. If ever a man had cause to be grateful for assistance in dark days, I am he. The Aurora, under the command of Captain Ineas Mackintosh, sailed from Hobart for the Ross Sea on December 24, 1914. The ship had refitted in Sydney, where the state and federal governments had given generous assistance, and would be able, if necessary, to spend two years in the Antarctic. My instructions to Captain Mackintosh, in brief, were to proceed to the Ross Sea, make a base at some convenient point in or near McMurdo Sound, land stores and equipment, and lay depots on the Great Ice Barrier in the direction of the Beardmore Glacier, for the use of the party that I expected to bring overland from the Waddell Sea Coast. This program would involve some heavy sledging, but the ground to be covered was familiar, and I had not anticipated that the work would present any great difficulties. The Aurora carried materials for a hut, equipment for landing and sledging parties, stores and clothing of all the kinds required, and an ample supply of sledges. There were also dog teams and one of the motor tractors. I had told Captain Mackintosh that it was possible the transcontinental journey would be attempted in the 1914-15 to season in the event of the landing on the Weddell Sea coast proving unexpectedly easy, and it would be his duty, therefore, to lay out depots to the south immediately after his arrival at the base. I had directed him to place a depot of food and fuel oil at latitude 80 degrees south in 1914-15, to with cans and flags as guides to a sledging party approaching from the direction of the pole. He would place depots farther south in the 1915-16 to season. The Aurora had an uneventful voyage southwards. She anchored off the sealing huts at Macquarie Island on Christmas Day, December 25th. The wireless station erected by Sir Douglas Mawson's Australian Antarctic Expedition could be seen on a hill to the northwest, with the expedition's hut at the base of the hill. This hut was still occupied by a meteorological staff, and later in the day the meteorologist, Mr. Tullock, came off to the ship and had dinner aboard. The Aurora had some stores for the Macquarie Island party, and these were sent ashore during succeeding days in the boats. The landing place was a rough, kelp-guarded beach, where lay the remains of the New Zealand bark Clyde. Macquarie Island anchorages are treacherous, and several ships engaged in the sealing and whaling trade have left their bones on the rocky shores, where bask great herds of seals and sea elephants. The Aurora sailed from the island on December 31st, and three days later they sighted the first iceberg, a tabular berg, rising 250 feet above the sea. This was in latitude 62 degrees 44 minutes south, longitude 169 degrees 58 minutes east. The next day, in latitude 64 degrees 27 minutes 38 seconds south, the aurora passed through the first belt of pack ice. At 9 a.m. on January 7th, Mount Sabine, 
a mighty peak of the Admiralty Range, South Victoria Land, was sighted seventy-five miles distant. It had been proposed that a party of three men should travel to Cape Crozier from winter quarters during the winter months in order to secure Emperor Penguin's eggs. The ship was to call at Cape Crozier, land provisions and erect a small hut of fibro-concrete sheets for the use of this party. The ship was off the Cape on the afternoon of January 9th, and the boat put off with Stenhouse, Cope, Joyce, Ninnis, Morgan and Aitken to search for a landing place. We steered in towards the barrier, wrote Stenhouse, and found an opening leading into a large bight, which jutted back to eastward into the barrier. We endeavoured without success to scale the steep ice foot under the cliffs, and then proceeded up the bay. Pulling along the edge of perpendicular ice, we turned into a bay in the ice cliff and came to a cul-de-sac, at the head of which was a grotto. At the head of the grotto, and on a ledge of snow, were perched some Adelie penguins. The beautiful green and blue tints in the ice colouring made a picture as unreal as a stage setting. Coming back along the edge of the bight towards the land, we caught and killed one penguin, much to the surprise of another, which ducked into a niche in the ice, and after much squawking was extracted with a boat-hook and captured. We returned to our original landing, and were fortunate in our time, for no sooner had we cleared the ledge, where Ninnis had been hanging in his endeavour to catch the penguin, than the barrier carved, and a piece weighing hundreds of tons toppled over into the sea. Since we left the ship, a mist had blown up from the south, and when we arrived back at the entrance to the bay, the ship could be but dimly seen. We found a slope on the ice foot, and Joyce and I managed, by cutting steps, to climb up to a ledge of debris between the cliffs and the ice, which we thought might lead to the vicinity of the Emperor Penguin Rookery. I sent the boat back to the ship to tell the captain of our failure to find a spot where we could depot the hut and stores, and then, with Joyce, set out to walk along the narrow land between the cliffs and the ice to the southward, in hopes of finding the rookery. We walked for about a mile along the foot of the cliffs, over undulating paths, sometimes crawling carefully down a gully, and then over rocks and debris which had fallen from the steep cliffs which towered above us. But we saw no sign of a rookery, or any place where a rookery could be. Close to the cliffs and separated from them by the path on which we travelled, the barrier in its movement towards the sea had broken and showed signs of pressure. Seeing a turn in the cliffs ahead, which we thought might lead to better prospects, we trudged on and were rewarded by a sight which Joyce admitted as being the grandest he had ever witnessed. The barrier had come into contact with the cliffs, and, from where we viewed it, it looked as if icebergs had fallen into a tremendous cavern and lay jumbled together in wild disorder. Looking down into that wonderful picture, one realised a little the eternalness of things. We had not long to wait, and, much as we wished to go ahead, had to turn back. I went into a small crevasse, no damage. 
Arriving back at the place where we had left the boat, we found it had not returned, so sat down under an overhang and smoked and enjoyed the sense of loneliness. Soon the boat appeared out of the mist, and the crew had much news for us. After we left the ship, the captain manoeuvred her in order to get close to the barrier, but, unfortunately, the engines were loath to be reversed when required to go astern, and the ship hit the barrier end-on. The barrier here is about twenty feet high, and her jib-boom took the weight and snapped at the cap. When I returned, Thompson was busy getting the broken boom and gear aboard. Luckily the cap was not broken, and no damage was done aloft, but it was rather a bad introduction to the Antarctic. There is no place to land the Cape Crozier hut and stores, so we must build a hut in the winter here, which will mean so much extra sledging from winter quarters. Bad start, good finish. Joyce and I went aloft to the crow's nest, but could see no opening in the barrier to eastward, where a ship might enter and get farther south. Mackintosh proceeded into McMurdo Sound. Heavy pack delayed the ship for three days, and it was not until January 16th that she reached a point off Cape Evans, where he landed ten tons of coal and ninety-eight cases of oil. During succeeding days, Captain Mackintosh worked the Aurora southward, and by January 24th he was within nine miles of Hut Point. There he made the ship fast to sea ice, then breaking up rapidly, and proceeded to arrange sledging parties. It was his intention to direct the laying of the depots himself, and to leave his first officer, Lieutenant J. R. Stenhouse, in command of the Aurora, with instructions to select a base and land a party. The first objective was Hut Point, where stands the hut erected by the Discovery Expedition in 1902. An advance party, consisting of Joyce, in charge, Jack, and Gaze, with dogs and fully loaded sledges, left the ship on January 24th. Mackintosh, with Wilde and Smith, followed the next day, and a supporting party, consisting of Cope, in charge, Stevens, Ninnis, Haywood, Hook, and Richards, left the ship on January 30th. The first two parties had dog teams. The third party took with it the motor tractor, which does not appear to have given the good service I had hoped to get from it. These parties had a strenuous time during the weeks that followed. The men, fresh from shipboard, were not in the best of training, and the same was true of the dogs. It was unfortunate that the dogs had to be worked so early after their arrival in the Antarctic. They were in poor condition, and they had not learned to work together as teams. The result was the loss of many of the dogs, and this proved a serious matter in the following season. Captain Mackintosh's record of the sledging in the early months of 1915 is fairly full. It will not be necessary here to follow the fortunes of the various parties in detail, for although the men were facing difficulties and dangers, they were on well-travelled ground, which has been made familiar to most readers by the histories of earlier expeditions. Captain Mackintosh and his party left the Aurora on the evening of January 25th. They had nine dogs and one heavily loaded sledge, and started off briskly to the accompaniment of a cheer from their shipmates. 
The dogs were so eager for exercise after their prolonged confinement aboard the ship that they dashed forward at their best speed, and it was necessary for one man to sit upon the sledge in order to moderate the pace. Mackintosh had hoped to get to Hut Point that night, but luck was against him. The weather broke after he had travelled about five miles, and snow, which completely obscured all landmarks, sent him into camp on the sea ice. The weather was still thick on the following morning, and the party, making a start after breakfast, missed its way. We shaped a course where I imagined Hut Point to be, wrote Captain Mackintosh in his diary, but when the sledge-meter showed thirteen miles fifty yards, which is four miles in excess of the distance from the slip to Hut Point, I decided to halt again. The surface was changing considerably, and the land was still obscured. We have been travelling over a thick snow surface, in which we sink deeply, and the dogs are not too cheerful about it. They started again at noon on January 27th, when the weather had cleared sufficiently to reveal the land, and reached Hut Point at 4 p.m. The sledge-meter showed that the total distance travelled had been over seventeen miles. Mackintosh found in the hut a note from Joyce, who had been there on the 25th, and who reported that one of his dogs had been killed in a fight with its companions. The hut contained some stores left there by earlier expeditions. The party stayed there for the night. Mackintosh left a note for Stenhouse, directing him to place provisions in the hut, in case the sledging parties did not return in time to be taken off by the ship. Early next morning, Joyce reached the hut. He had encountered bad ice, and had come back to consult with Mackintosh regarding the route to be followed. Mackintosh directed him to steer out towards Black Island in crossing the head of the sand beyond Hut Point. Mackintosh left Hut Point on January 28th. He had taken some additional stores, and he mentions that the sledge now weighed 1,200 pounds. This was a heavy load, but the dogs were pulling well, and he thought it practicable. He encountered difficulty almost at once after descending the slope from the point to the sea ice, for the sledge stuck in soft snow, and the party had to lighten the load and relay until they reached a better surface. They were having trouble with the dogs, which did not pull cheerfully, and the total distance covered in the day was under four miles. The weather was warm, and the snow consequently was soft. Mackintosh had decided that it would be best to travel at night. A fall of snow held up the party throughout the following day, and they did not get away from their camp until shortly before midnight. The surface was abominably soft wrote Mackintosh. We harnessed ourselves onto the sledge, and with the dogs made a start. But we had a struggle to get off. We had not gone very far when in deeper snow we stopped dead. Try as we would, no movement could be produced. Reluctantly we unloaded and began the tedious task of relaying. The work, in spite of the lighter load on the sledge, proved terrific for ourselves and for the dogs. We struggled for four hours, and then set camp to await the evening, when the sun would not be so fierce, and the surface might be better. I must say I feel somewhat despondent, 
as we are not getting on as well as I expected, nor do we find it as easy as one would gather from reading. The two parties met again that day. Joyce also had been compelled to relay his load, and all hands laboured strenuously and advanced slowly. They reached the edge of the barrier on the night of January 30th, and climbed an easy slope to the barrier surface, about thirty feet above the sea ice. The dogs were showing signs of fatigue, and when Mackintosh camped at 6.30 a.m. on January 31st, he reckoned that the distance covered in twelve and a half hours had been about two and a half miles. The men had killed a seal at the edge of the sea ice, and placed the meat in a can for future use. One dog, having refused to pull, had been left behind with a good feed of meat, and Mackintosh hoped the animal would follow. The experiences of the party during the days that followed can be indicated by some extracts from Mackintosh's diary. Sunday, January 31st. Started off this afternoon at 3 p.m. Surface too dreadful for words. We sink into snow at times up to our knees, the dogs struggling out of it, panting and making great efforts. I think the soft snow must be accounted for by a phenomenally fine summer, without much wind. After proceeding about one thousand yards, I spotted some poles on our starboard side. We shaped course for these, and found Captain Scott's safety camp. We unloaded a relay here, and went back with empty sledge for the second relay. It took us four hours to do just this short distance. It is exasperating. After we had got the second load up, we had lunch. Then we dug round the poles, white snow fell, and after getting down about three feet, we came across, first, a bag of oats. Lower down, two cases of dog biscuit, one with a complete week's ration, the other with seal meat. A good find. About forty paces away, we found a venesta lid sticking out of the snow. Smith scraped round this with his ice axe, and presently discovered one of the motor sledges Captain Scott used. Everything was just as it had been left, the petrol tank partly filled and apparently undeteriorated. We marked the spot with a pole. The snow clearing, we proceeded with a relay. We got only half a mile, still struggling in deep snow, and then went back for the second load. We can still see the cairn erected at the barrier edge, and a black spot which we take to be the dog. February 1st We turned out at 7.30 p.m., and after a meal broke camp. We made a relay of two and a half miles. The sledge-meter stopped during this relay. Perhaps that is the cause of our mileage not showing. We covered seven and a half miles in order to bring the load two and a half miles. After lunch we decided, as the surface was getting better, to make a shot at travelling with the whole load. It was a back-breaking job. Wilde led the team, while Smith and I pulled in harness. The great trouble is to get the sledge started after many unavoidable stops. We managed to cover one mile. This even is better than relaying. We then camped, the dogs being entirely done up, poor brutes. February 2nd we were awakened this afternoon, while in our bags, 
by hearing Joyce's dogs barking. They have done well and have caught us up. Joyce's voice was heard presently, asking us the time. He is managing the full load. We issued a challenge to race him to the bluff, which he accepted. When we turned out at 6.30 p.m., his camp was seen about three miles ahead. About 8 p.m., after our hoosh, we made a start and reached Joyce's camp at 1 a.m. The dogs had been pulling well, seeing the camp ahead, but when we arrived off it, they were not inclined to go on. After a little persuasion and struggle, we got off, but not for long. This starting business is terrible work. We have to shake the sledge and its big load while we shout to the dogs to start. If they do not pull together, it is useless. When we get the sledge going, we are on tenterhooks lest it stop again on the next soft slope, and this often occurs. Sledging is real hard work, but we are getting along. End of chapter 13, part 1 Recorded by Gesine in September 2007